Uh, we have a dog named Bailey, and we love Bailey very much. She is a beagle and hound mix. She's mostly a perfect pet. But Leal, if you have a pet, you know this like all pets. Nobody's perfect. She gets into trouble here and there. And so Bailey, typically the way she gets in trouble at our house is she'll roll around in something stinky or she'll use the bathroom in the house. But the thing about Bailey is when she's done something wrong, there is deep and immediate shame. All we have to do is look at her and she just melts into the floor and begins to moan this pitiful moan and I'll say, Bailey, what did you do? And it's just too much for her. I mean, she can't make eye contact anymore. She's so sorry. Now, she's not sorry enough to stop doing it, right? But at least in that moment, she's just torn apart. She's destroyed. Y'all, shame is something we all know and feel. And we experience shame as human beings uniquely, much more than any dog, any animal could. For a lot of us, if we're honest with our own hearts, y'all, shame is really wrapped up very deeply in the sense of our own identity and who we are. It's just something we carry as an undercurrent in all of life. We may go our entire lives always feeling, in some sense, ashamed of ourselves. And that's part of, honestly, part of what makes the gospel of Jesus such wonderful good news is that Jesus really has loved us at our very lowest and worst. That's what the Scripture declares, that while we were yet enemies of God, He loved us and gave Himself for us. Jesus Christ uh, forgives us entirely and eternally through His life given on the cross when He shed His blood. That was for all of our sins. So that now, by faith in Him, by His free grace, you and I are forgiven and cleansed all the way through. And the Scripture says we have now been set free from all condemnation and all shame. And so for for us, perhaps, for some of us today, this is the very thing you need to hear the most, right at, at the front of the sermon, is that Jesus Christ came to remove both your sin and your shame. Shame has no place now in the light of Jesus. But I say that also up front, because today as we finish 1 John chapter 2, there's a very important exhortation that John's going to give us at the end of this chapter. It's really, in a sense, a warning he gives the church about living in such a way that we might have cause to feel shame in the presence of Jesus when he returns. I want to give us this main point up front so that there might not be any confusion. Y'all, there's a kind of life that God graciously gives us. We call it salvation. There's absolutely nothing we do in salvation. It's entirely the free gift of God in His grace. There is a corresponding life that accompanies this salvation. And the word we use is sanctification. And of course, that is something we attend to. We participate in. We walk in the light, as John has told us up to this point in this letter. Now these two things, salvation and sanctification, they're directly linked. They are inseparable. Ultimately, they both come from God. God doesn't leave us alone to be sanctified. He's fundamental to that too. But really, I think beginning today, we're going to see John link these things together for us and show us how they cannot be seen one without the other. There's an eternal life we've been given. And there's a new life right here and now in which we actively walk, we live. And so I want us to begin this morning with the verse that we finished last week. This is 
1 John chapter 2, verse 24, where John kind of lays out for us uh, the position in which we stand and walk. He says, verse 24, as for you, church, as for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which He Himself made to us. Eternal life. John began this whole section back in verse 18 by telling us that we are in the last hour. Meaning we are always right now, we are living right on the cusp of the return of Christ. He is going to come at a, at a time, an hour, a day that we cannot know or expect. But being that we are in the last hour, John wants us to live always with the return of Christ fresh on our minds and clearest in our hopes. We want Him to come. We should expect it and live as if He could come any moment. And y'all, it's here in this last hour, we saw last week, that all, now all manner of opposition and deception are confronting the church. The enemy is ramping up his efforts to try to shroud and obscure and deny the gospel of Jesus. So, John says, the church now stands firm upon two things in particular. And he gives us these two things. We saw it last week and we're going to see it again. First, John says, we stand upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit who has been given to everyone who trusts in Jesus. And second, we stand on the Word of God, the teaching of the apostles, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which serves as the foundation for all the life of faith. So we see that in verse 24, the verse we just read. Concerning God's Word, John says, let that, that, the Word, abide in you, which you heard from the beginning. What John is saying here is that the truth of Jesus is meant to soak deep down into us, like water to a sponge. That we can't get by simply by acknowledging true ideas of religion or even of Christianity. True ideas typically sit only on the surface of the human mind and heart. John says, no, we have the truth abiding in us which means a deep-down new reality that both defines who we are and also animates how we live. You can't abide on the surface. There is no such thing. That denies the definition of the word. To abide means something has gotten deep down at the very center of our being. And y'all, I just want to say this. I made mention of this last week. It's good for us to remind ourselves of kind of an ongoing threat. Certainly for us, if you were raised up in a Christian home or you raised in the South in the Bible Belt like most of us were, the threat is that we might adopt for ourselves a very surface-level version of Christianity and treat that as what is normative. This is just the way we do it here. There's a kind of religion, y'all, that believes in God and very much respects the Bible and you know, tries to live by the golden rule to be a nice and good person. But it only exists on the surface. It's a kind of religion that never gets deep down and really changes us. And I want us to reckon with this, and John wants us to also, y'all, because if, if we try to kind of get by on surface-level Christianity, 
then that kind of faith simply will not stand in the face of real opposition or the kind of deception that John's talking about here in this letter. Surface-level Christianity will not offer you any strength when you face real suffering. And y'all, what's worse than that, any kind of surface-level religion never actually comes to know God. And if we're familiar with what the Scripture says, the goal of the Christian life is not simply to attend to the ideas, to believe and try our best to obey. That's what other religions teach, perhaps, but not ours. Our faith, the goal of our faith, eternal life, Jesus says, is that we might know God and His Son, Jesus, whom He has sent. And so, y'all, if we live on the surface merely then the best we have in the face of opposition or suffering or any other issue we might face, the best we typically have is just catchphrases that do us no good. The truth must be deep down. And so look at John's alternative here. Not on the surface, but an abiding faith. He says, we just read it, if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Which is to say, there's a deep down abiding truth that anchors a deep down abiding relationship. What we see in the Scripture, if it's operational in our heart, it's always going to lead us deeper and deeper into the knowledge of God, a knowing of Him in a personal way. And so look at the nature of this relationship. What we just read in verse 25. See this again? Such a simple verse here and so profound. This is the promise, John says, which God Himself made to us. Eternal life. God Himself promises us eternal life. And y'all, here's an example of where surface-level Christianity will never get us to the heart of what God is communicating here. So let's be careful with how we define terms. Eternal life is not just going on living after death. Everybody experiences that whether in salvation or judgment. That's not the meaning here. So maybe an illustration would help us. Uh, Think about a wedding, for example. Uh, When a man and a woman come together on the altar for a wedding, I I have periodically, I'll get the joy of standing in between them. Every time somebody for their anniversary, they'll they'll post pictures of their wedding day, and there's half of Kyle's face smiling in between them as they're kissing. It's always such a thrill. Um, When a man and a woman come together at the altar to get married... What are they getting there at the altar? Well, they're getting some new rings. Uh, They're getting a new tax bracket. They get to file a joint tax return now. Isn't that sweet? Uh, They're getting help in paying the bills and doing the chores. I mean, those things are all true. But that's also silly if we thought of, of marriage only in those terms. No, there at the altar on that day, they're getting a person. They're entering together, husband and wife, and into, into an entirely new life. And in a real sense, they're, they're taking on a new identity as, as covenant husband and wife. They're getting a person. Y'all, listen. When God Himself promises us eternal life, we are not meant to reduce eternal life to a thing that God transacts to us. We're talking instead about the absolute fullness of perfect union with God forever. 
we get God. Eternal life is a kind of life that goes on forever that we find only in the Lord Himself. And we receive, through His life, we receive all the outpouring of God's love and His kindness and His mercy and His goodness without measure and without end. That's eternal life. King David once said of the Lord, in your presence there is fullness of joy and in your right hand there are pleasures forever. And for those who receive this life through Jesus Christ, this is both true of the life to come, eternal life, but the Scripture also tells us it's true right here and now. We have life today in Christ even as we await the culmination of this life at His return. You know, I said this back in, in chapter 1, but I want to say it again. Eternal life is not a thing. It's not primarily even a place that we inhabit. Eternal life is life. It's every waking moment and experience. It's the fullness of who we are and who God has created us to be and one day will consummate us to be. We find this life and we enjoy it in the Lord. This is life as God defines it and He gives it to us. He lavishes it upon us through His Son, Jesus. Y'all, this is why Jesus says in the book of John, come to Me that you may have life. Come to Me. That's where it's found. And y'all, this is not extracurricular stuff here. This is, this is Christianity 101. This is foundational for us, which is why John keeps driving down on this. I want you to see how John repeats what he said last week, he says it again concerning the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. Look at verse 26 now. These things, John says, I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. There's the opposition. But as for you, verse 27, the anointing which you received from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. So here in the face of opposition and deception, false teaching, John says we have something the false teachers do not have and cannot produce. We have the very Spirit of God abiding in us. And the Spirit teaches us all things. And He is true and is not a liar. His Word is true and is never false. Y'all, our faith, John says, is profoundly spiritual. And that may seem like such an obvious statement, but y'all, oddly enough, a lot of people struggle with the spirituality of Christianity. And I'm one of them because I'm a super practical, down-to-earth, a plus B equals C kind of person. I like to think very pragmatically. It's just the way I am. And so when we speak of the Spirit dwelling in us and working in us, I even as a pastor, y'all, I mean, I, I preach this stuff, but it always makes me a little nervous because spiritual things are less tangible, right? But y'all, both Jesus and the apostles teach us that to be a Christian, this is a non-negotiable thing. God's very Spirit, the very person of God, comes to indwell us. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8 says, we are of the Spirit. 
we are no longer according to the flesh. Jesus said, that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. And now that means a lot of things, but at the very least it means that God Himself has not left us alone. Christianity is not God handing us the rules and now we do the best to keep them. No, God Himself dwells within us, meaning the Spirit uh, enters into our hearts and minds to comfort us, to strengthen us, to guide and direct us, and to establish us, John says, in what is true. Therefore, John says, if you have the Spirit of God, you have no need for anyone to teach you. Now, I'm about to put myself out of a job here if I'm not careful. Okay? We don't take this verse absolutely, and I'm not going to do it today, but you buy me a cup of coffee and I'll prove it. The Bible is very clear. The New Testament is very clear that God raises up teachers. People who preach and teach, people who shepherd. We need teachers. John's teaching as he's writing. He's not denying the very letter he's writing. But the point here is this, that because the Spirit of God dwells in you, your faith does not rest on the wisdom of men. Your faith does not rest on what any human teacher says as a matter of fact. No. The Spirit of God leads us into truth. Which is, in John's case, as he addresses error, deception, he's trying to communicate to us that the Spirit of God in you is going to raise up a red flag anytime somebody teaches something that's in contradiction to the revealed Word of God. The Spirit of God leads us into the truth. The very bedrock is here, and the Spirit will not contradict. But when there is contradiction, when things get fuzzy or flimsy even, the Spirit of God raises up the flag in us. He's going to lead us away from error and into reality. So in John's case, there were false teachers. They were claiming to be spiritual authorities. They were claiming to have knowledge that nobody else had. And yet they were denying the plain teaching of the gospel. And John contends that if you have the spirit of truth in you, then that spirit will never deny or diminish or discredit Jesus. And so no matter how good it sounds, no matter how dynamic a speaker might be, if in any sense he or she denies, discredits, displaces Jesus from the center of the gospel, then the Spirit will reveal that it is false. Because the Spirit's great work is to exalt Jesus, never to diminish Him, only to make more and more of Him, to reveal Jesus, and to call us into an abiding relationship with Him. And that's the end of verse 27. The Spirit, the anointing, teaches you to abide in Christ. And so, y'all, today, this is where right belief meets right practice, and the two come together. John just told us the truth of the gospel abides in us. The Spirit of God abides in us with the outcome that we abide in Christ. Meaning, we are full now of trust and dependence on Jesus. We look only to Him for grace and salvation. We fix our eyes on Him, Hebrews 12 tells us. We treasure Him and we obey Him from the heart in love. That is perhaps what it means here to abide in Christ. And so it is at the end of this chapter that John makes a very serious appeal to us to abide in Christ 
There are a lot of reasons why we should. Here's one, John says, in verse 28. He says, now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Now, it's vital, before we explain these verses, it's vital that we're, we're always careful to make clear what the gospel, the good news, says. It is not our righteousness that produces salvation. Not even our best righteousness can do that. We are born of God, born again. We are saved only by His righteousness given to us. That is His grace received through faith. Jesus Christ is our Savior. There is no salvation apart from Him. But John is clear, equally clear, there in verse 29, the last verse of the chapter, that salvation does produce righteousness. It's not our righteousness that produces salvation, but our salvation does produce righteousness. Everyone who practices righteousness is born of God, meaning it is, an, it is a necessary and obvious evidence that we have come to know the Lord, that God's truth, God's Spirit, God's abiding grace within us produces change. It produces godliness in greater measure as time goes along. And that's probably what John has in mind, the practicing of righteousness, when he says in verse 28 that we ought to abide in Christ, right? It means we are to walk in the light as he himself is in the light. We are to love Jesus, treasure him, and obey him. We are to show forth our love, our allegiance in how we live. And this again, this is Christianity 101. This is, not, uh, this is nothing controversial about this, what John is commanding here. But what he says, I hope, really stops us in our tracks. It does for me. It has since the very first time I ever came across this verse, verse 28. Listen to what he says again. He says, Now little children, abide in Christ, so that when He appears, when He returns, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, there is some debate over who John has in mind in the latter part of that verse. Um, is it possible for a true Christian to shrink away from Jesus in shame at his return? Or is that only a reference to people who have rejected Jesus and who face judgment? It's a fair debate. Y'all, I have always taken the approach here that this is a verse for Christians. Certainly, it's not a warning that we could lose our salvation somehow. But I do take it as a warning that even as Christians, we could live in such a way that we would not welcome Jesus with eagerness when He returns because we have not treasured Him and obeyed Him in the ways that he deserves. Uh, maybe we could picture it like this, and I want you to humor me here for a moment. What if somehow you knew that Jesus was coming over to your house 
for dinner tomorrow night. You know that the Son of God is going to knock on your door around 6 o'clock. What would you do between now and 6 o'clock tomorrow in preparation for Jesus showing up at the door? I know what you'd do. You'd do the same thing as I do. You would clean your house like you've never cleaned it before. You'd be searching for spider webs with a flashlight. You'd be, you'd be scrubbing the baseboards, the kind of stuff you never think about. All of a sudden now would be fresh on your mind. You'd be throwing junk in the closets, hoping Jesus didn't open those doors and see behind closed doors, right? You, you, you'd be stressing over what to serve Him. And what do you serve? The Son of God. Over what, you, what you're going to be dressed in, you know, what your kids are going to wear, how they're going to act, and on and on and on, right? Why would you be so uptight? Why would you be so stressed? Because it's Jesus we're talking about. We get stressed when anybody comes over. When the UPS guy just comes over and peeks through the window, right? Now, if Jesus shows up, man, we're going to lose all sense of ourselves because we don't, we, for one, we want to make a good impression on Jesus, but also, y'all, if I'm honest, I don't want to be put to shame about how I really live. Now, in all seriousness, what if somehow you knew that Jesus would actually return tomorrow? I mean, we got 24 hours. The fullness of the time has come, and this is it. That's not something we can know, but what if you could? What if you knew? What would you do in 24 hours' time? Would you try to get your life in order? I mean, would, you, would you confess all your sins Delete your browser history? Would you, be, would you suddenly become radically generous? You know, go start asking for forgiveness from all the people that you've, that you've sinned against? What I'm asking is, if you knew the time was that short and Jesus was preparing to come back, would you be confident in that scenario? Or would you feel ashamed? Would I be eager to meet Jesus tomorrow? Or would I want to just melt into the floor? Now, I don't ask that to scare us so much as I hope to stir us, and, and starting with me, to stir us up to consider the life that we now live in light of the gospel of Jesus and in light of the indwelling spirit. See, John says in verse 28, now, little children, abide in him. That is present tense continuous. Now and ongoing. Right now, John says, with each breath that we receive as a gift from God, with each day God blesses us to wake up to, John says, abide in Christ now. Not when the time is short. Not like when you're about to go to the dentist and so you start brushing your teeth really hard as if that's going to make up for a year's worth of neglect, right? That's not how we're meant to live. Certainly not in light of the return of Christ. We're meant to abide, to build our whole life on Him, to trust Him, to treasure Him, to obey His Word, to walk in the light, to proclaim His grace, to practice righteousness. So that when He does appear, we may have confidence, assurance, glorious expectation, rather than shame. Now, I don't know where you stand on that right now. But y'all, if I just confess Kyle's heart here, um, I don't typically live with glorious expectation of the return of Jesus. 
Um, partly because there's a lot of things in my bucket list I haven't done yet. Shameful as that is to say. But part of it too is I don't know what I would have to show for myself. I'm not sure. And so as, as we close here, and I want to make a very careful distinction because never, ever, ever on a Sunday, ever, should we walk out the doors of God's church crushed underneath the burden of our own failures. Ever. And so let's make a distinction here as we close. And we're going to, let's, let's, the, the word has stung a little bit, but let's let the word sing a little bit too. All of us, y'all, all of us have cause to feel shame. I don't have to know you. I don't have to know the details. Nobody in this room has lived as faithfully or as righteously as we could. Nobody. Nobody has been as loving or as generous or as humble or as pure-hearted as we know we ought to be. And so if we all have cause for shame in that regard, we all do, where is this confidence supposed to come from? Where is this boldness, this assurance supposed to come from? If it doesn't come from my pure and clean and perfect record, then where is it? How can it be? Remember, y'all, the command that John just gave us. What does he say? Abide in Him. Abide in Christ. Y'all, our confidence, our bold assurance is not ever in our own righteousness. Even the righteousness that we do practice as Christians only comes as we abide in Christ. John 15, the good fruit must be produced by the vine, that is Jesus, only by our attachment to Him can we do anything good. And apart from Him, we can do nothing. So even the good things that we do come ultimately from Christ, from drawing upon His grace. And so if you look into your own heart this morning, if you look into your life right now, and you have cause for shame, can I plead with you, do not shrink away from Jesus right now. Draw near to Him. His arms are open. Right here, as we draw breath, as we have opportunity, you can confess your need of Him. You can right now put all your trust, all your weight on Him and His righteousness and His free grace. Jesus will save you. And He will sanctify you. Jesus will not only remove your shame, but He will also fill you with this kind of confidence and assurance that only comes with a deep-down relationship with Him. The only way we'll have confidence in the day of His appearing is if we make Him our great treasure and abide in Him and walk in His light. The confidence is not in you and me. It can't be. It's only found in Him. And that's why we're called to draw near and to dig deep. No surface-level Christianity. He Himself has promised us eternal life. So we may live right now, right now, in the joy of knowing and treasuring Jesus, of walking in the light. And that's where all our assurance is going to come from in the end, is that we know Him and we have given our heart to Him. And the glorious expectation of His return should never be lost on us. If considering His return brings you into shame, 
And that is right now our wake-up call. Not to clean your life up in hopes that He would receive from you your good works in the end. But to come to Him so that you might receive Him. And He would produce the good works that please Him. That's why John says, right now, now, little children, abide in Him. Let that be our prayer this morning and our ambition. Not to look into ourselves, but to look to Jesus Christ as our hope. Y'all, I want to call us this morning to respond. And if the Lord should be working on your heart in any way this morning, whether it's about this sermon or something else, it may be something that's been ongoing in your life, our pastor's love for nothing more uh, than to meet with you, to take you by the hand, to pray with you. And so Evan and Aaron will be here at the back of the room by the back doors. Uh, as I'm praying, as we sing our final song, uh, step back and, and let them pray with you. Um, if there's something that, that has to wait or that you prefer to, to hold on to, then make a note on the card. Come find us after worship. If God is reckoning with you in any way, um, then uh, it's, it's our joy to shepherd, to pastor. So we ask for that privilege here in these coming moments or in the week to come. But all of us have something here to respond to. None of us are as we ought to be. Let that not shrink us back. Let that propel us forward. Jesus Christ is here. His arms are open. He welcomes all who would abide in Him. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that we would have uh, such a heart this morning, all of us, to confess. Certainly we all have sin to confess. But Lord, maybe the particular sin this morning of um, trying to, to operate on some religious surface and Lord, not taking the opportunity, Lord, You've granted us to drink deeply of the living water of Jesus. Lord, to look intently on the perfect law of liberty, Your Word, the Gospel. Lord, perhaps we have, we've become complacent or we've just adopted a, a lesser version of Christian ideas. And we're not living in the depths and, and the awesomeness, Lord, of the grace You've given us. Lord, we're not abiding in Christ. And so, Father, I pray this morning for us, and I pray starting with me, that, Lord, we would reject outright any lesser thing. Lord, that we would reject catchphrases about you. That we would reject, Lord, social, um, you know, uh, Christianity that comes with the part of the country in which we live or the family maybe that, that we were raised in, Lord, that we, would, that we would look to Jesus Christ and his wonderful cross this morning and be filled with such treasuring, with such affection, with such gratitude that, Lord, there would be nothing in the world that we would want more than to know you, Lord, and to, to walk in the light of your grace and your truth. Father, this is not a switch that we can just magically flip. This, this Lord, is, a, this is a, a walk. This is a life, Lord. 
And so, Father, we, I pray we trust this morning that we won't, it, it won't just magically be there if we grit our teeth. It's, that's not how this works. But, Lord, I do pray that there will be a, a very clear turning for us this morning. Turning, Lord, away from all distraction or entanglement or sin. And, Lord, fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. Father, help us this morning to see with great clarity what the gospel is. Not your command for us to do better, Father, but your welcome arms to those who know we can't. That we might come to Christ and receive a new heart, a new spirit, and then reflect light and righteousness, Lord, more and more. Father, I pray we never get it out of order. Help us, Father. Um, we, we, we will not do this unless, Lord, your grace abounds to us. And so we, your church, ask for it, please. We ask for more and more of you through your Son, Jesus Christ, given us, and now your Spirit indwelling us. So let it be, we pray in Christ's awesome name. Amen.